today we are uh, still continuing in our study of the book of Philippians. Uh, two more weeks, and then we will be done with our uh, study of this incredible book in the New Testament. I w- I'd love to encourage you as we wind down this uh, study that maybe you could, in the coming week, read through the entire book, maybe in one sitting. Uh, it's pretty short, and so it's very doable, just a couple of pages in your Bibles. But just to summarize and refresh where we've been in this journey and the things that you've learned as we uh, tie it all together uh, in the next week. And so, uh, two more to go, and here we go. Let me say a word of prayer as we begin. God, thank you for this time. We uh, consecrate ourselves to you, uh, meaning we, we bring ourselves with open hearts, humble hearts, even trembling hearts. We, we know we, we don't have power to save ourselves or fix ourselves. We need you to come and do that. And so please come and shine the spotlight of your word upon our hearts, our deep need for you, but also the light of your spirit upon the person of Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. I love coupons. I mean, come on, who doesn't want every opportunity to save a few bucks or maybe even a few cents. I love coupons. You know, in the old days, I don't know if you remember, but coupons were something that you had to find in a newspaper. Uh, you'd find the ones that you needed specifically. You would cut them out. And then when you hand them to the cashier at the grocery store, you feel like you won the lottery. That's the way they worked. These days, it's changed a little bit, hasn't it? You go to the grocery store, they give you coupons, but the computer looks up your pattern of spending or the things that you just bought, and they make these recommendations based on that, and they make a couple offers to you, give you a stack of printed coupons, as it were. You might have experienced this in the grocery store. The problem is, the problem, of course, is that they almost always give you coupons for things you don't need. No, don't know if you've experienced that or recently. Uh, you know, have you ever gone on a grocery run like one that I recently had and you're walking out the store sort of thumbing through that stack of coupons a machine just spat out, hoping to hit the jackpot, and yet you're noticing, well, here you are, you know, Gillette disposable razors. Well, sorry, I use an electric razor. Uh, NyQuil, thanks, but I'm feeling just fine. Uh, Doritos, buy one, get one. You know, look, I really want to, but I can't. Or, you know, Axe, dry, dark, temptation, deodorant, body spray. Look, I really want to, but, you know, uh, No, thanks. I'm not a teenage guy, right? You almost want to say, that's really nice, but those aren't the things that I need right now. Sometimes we can feel that same way about the things that the Bible says. No, that's really nice, maybe even helpful, but that's not something I need in my life right now. Which raises the question, of course, does the grace of God and the good news of Jesus have practical relevance, today relevance to my life, to your life, not knowing what it is right now that you're facing, challenges, trials, troubles. 
I think the answer throughout our study of Philippians has been a resounding yes. The good news of Christ is utterly, deeply relevant, practical, applicable. But I think today's passage gets especially practical. It hits on extremely day-to-day ways that God's grace impacts details of life. Details like when you're stuck in unresolved conflict with someone. Like when you're unhappy, you don't know where to turn. Like when you want to uh, just sort of wallow in worry, or you feel drained by anxiety. What do you do? What does the good news of Christ have to do with these? A lot, according to this passage, according to the Apostle Paul. So we're going to look at three quick, very day-to-day, real-world needs that we have around these three areas. Number one, conflict. Number two, joy and sorrow. And number three, worry. Conflict, joy and sorrow, and worry. This is what this passage addresses today. Let's take a look. Number one, conflict. Bible and the book of Philippians specifically has a lot to say about the glory of community in Christ. A very high and elevated view of the kind of relationships that can be, that ought to be shared by brothers and sisters in the family of God. We see this even in verse 1 of this passage where Paul is talking to the Philippian Christians. He refers to them as his brothers and sisters. You whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, my dear friends, you hear the affection, the love, the commitment, the solidarity that is offered in Christian community. And yet the Bible also has a very realistic and sober view of community as well, knowing that it is true that even for those that are redeemed in Christ and in process of being changed by Christ, we're still selfish sinners, and therefore we are prone to conflict. Conflict is a present reality in Christian community. That itself might be a thought worth thinking over, because sometimes we're more surprised by broken relationships than we ought to be in the church. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't be heartbroken by it. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't be distressed or even energized to resolve and heal conflict in the community, but one thing we should not be is surprised. We have here in verses 2 and 3 this word from Paul, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. There's some kind of a breakdown in relationships here in the church. We're not given any details. Paul doesn't take any sides. In fact, he goes out of his way, it seems, to plead with each of them individually. Not just, I plead with both of you, but I plead with you, Yodia. And I plead with you, Syntyche. He's addressing each of them as two people in the family of Christ. We don't know the details, but it's serious enough, and it's gone on long enough for Paul to have heard about it 
for him to have written about it. We don't know if the nature of the conflict was scandalous. It doesn't seem so. He doesn't give us any specifics. But one thing that we can observe here, in the way that he doesn't write them personally, but rather publicly, is this. Your and my broken relationships, friends, affects the entire church. More than we might think. That there's actually a ripple effect in our relationships. We've related to this. We've experienced this, haven't we? When things aren't right with one friend, the way it spills over to other friends. The way you change direction as to who you hang out with and how much you open your heart to other people. Once you've been wounded, once you've been met with a slam door, proverbially, so to speak, in a relationship, how it makes you gun-shy, more hesitant to enter deeply into intimate, vulnerable community. In Christian fellowship, division between two individuals is never private, never merely personal. It always affects others. Have you reckoned with that? Do you understand that your beef today with that other person, your cold shoulder, your inability to resolve that thing that's been going on, it does spill over into other relationships, dear friends. One commentator put it this way, I think smartly. Christian fellowship and Christian fellowships, communities, are often at their worst when dealing with differences of opinion. In some ways, biblically-based churches find it easier to deal with false teaching. Personal differences can be almost as deadly, dividing the fellowship, sowing seeds of bitterness, diverting attention from central issues to sometimes petty peripheral concerns, sucking energy that should be employed in building up believers and in reaching out to the community. How effectively we handle these differences may say more about the biblical character of our church life than how we handle heresy. Woo, you hear that? How we manage conflict, what we do when we run into jams with each other, says this theologian and wise teacher, may tell us more about the character, the true heart of this church, more so even than how we handle false teaching or how we handle doctrine and theology. Do you believe it? So friends, your life, my relationships, our conflicts, what does it say about Grace Meridian Hill? There's hope, of course. The Apostle Paul gives us some tools. We'll take a look at that right now. A couple quick points that he raises. So what do you do then? How do we get out of these jams? First of all, Paul reminds them to put relationships before your rights. You're stuck in a conflict. What do you do? Put relationships, people, before your own rights. He says to these two sisters, be of the same mind in the Lord. Be unified in your thinking in the Lord. And if you've been with us, you remember that language. It's a clear echo of the same words in Philippians 2, verses 2 and 5, when Paul is talking to the Philippian community, saying, be of the same mind. Put 
others ahead of yourself. Consider people better than yourself. Lay down your lives as Jesus did his own, not exercising his rights to be worshipped, not exercising and demanding that others heed his right to be exalted, but rather he who gave it all up in ignobility, in taking on the form of a human being, humbling himself even to the point of death on a cross to love you, to put you first. This Paul This mind, this attitude of heart, Paul says, is the key to resolving conflict. Because sometimes you win by losing. You get your friend back by giving up yourself. By not demanding your rights in order to serve in a relationship. Secondly, Paul also says, look, understand that conflict is family business. It's a community enterprise. I mean, you notice he says here, not just Yodia and Syntyche, figure it out on your own. In the next sentence there, he says, yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women. Help them community of Christ. Paul might be speaking to one person in the church, we don't know, possibly Epaphroditus who was mentioned earlier in the letter, or maybe someone whose name means my true companion in Greek, but most likely he's calling the entire community to get involved. Even the word help there, it's a word that can actually be translated seize or arrest. He's saying, get in there and grab a hold of the situation. Get involved, church, friends, bystanders. Don't just let the thing blow itself up. Don't just let these sisters remain in their lockdown gridlock in relationship. But dive in too often, friends. Christian teaching on conflict resolution is, hey, you and hey, you go work it out. Then, of course, the Bible does say that. But here the Bible is saying, friends, go get involved. Conflict resolution is a community priority. When was the last time that you offered yourself in gentle, loving care to another person to say, hey, I, you know, I've noticed that you guys are bumping heads. Is there anything I can do to help? Or for you, if you're in that position to turn to a person, maybe it's a counselor, maybe it's a friend, to say, hey, we're just stuck here. We need help. What would it look like at our church for our relational trouble to be group exercises in seeking healing, not simply individual ones, not to meddle in each other's business, but to love as a supportive family. Thirdly, the apostle also reminds these people that, look, she is not your enemy. Because how easy is it to slip into that mindset 
and working through trouble. He says, help these women since they've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers. He's saying, don't forget, you've been a part of a team. Team gospel. (laughs) Team church. Team family. Uh, There's almost this wisdom that when we're in the midst of sort of this temptation to think the worst of the person that you're not getting along with, this wisdom to, to, to say, hey, can you recall, can you pause, can you stop, and can you please recall those better days? <laughs> can you please recall their track record of faithfulness, of service, of generosity, not only to those around you together as a part of the same kingdom team, but also to you, the ways they've loved you and served you and laid down their life for you. They're not your enemy, not if they're a brother or sister in Christ. And fourthly and lastly, the apostle, he addresses these folks and he says, look, and don't you dare forget that this relationship, this broken relationship, this thing that's just causing you distress and even infecting the entire community, don't you forget, these relationships are eternal. He says, these dear friends, not only Yodia, not only Syntyche, not only this uh, dear loyal yoke fellow, this true companion, not only Clement and the rest of the co-workers, All of them together, remember, these are those whose names are in the book of life. Saved for all of eternity. Lives who body and soul will be redeemed and perfected in the image of Christ. Family, not only now, but forever, literally forever. Written, names written personally, specifically, with stories and identities attached and known and treasured in the very heart of God. If written in his heart, will those names also please be written in your hearts? And if God would so treasure and value her like that, Will you please work through this trouble with his heart upon yours? Because your relationships are eternal. What might this look like in your life? What relationship needs to be just uh, saturated by the grace of God in this coming week? What one or two practical tools, tools of faith can you employ to grow in grace in your broken relationships today. The grace of Jesus for our conflicts. Secondly, this passage, the Apostle Paul touches on joy and sorrow. Not only conflict, but secondly, joy and sorrow. He says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. We just sang a song based upon these 
words. Rejoice in the Lord. I remember several years ago taking a family picture. My nephew was about six years old at that time, maybe seven years old, and uh, his dad was trying to just capture the moment and and uh, zooming in on him and his sister. And uh, my nephew was at that age where they're just trying to figure out exactly how to smile and coming out a little bit funny as it happens, right? We've all been through that stage. And so his dad calls out to him, hey, you know, uh, try not to look awkward, son. And my nephew, in all helplessness, cries out, daddy, I don't know how to not awkward. Just so helpless. And many of us feel that way when you hear these words, rejoice. I don't know how. What are you talking about? Don't you see my life? And some of you might even feel a distance or a bitterness, resentment perhaps, towards God when you hear words like this because they feel dismissive of your deepest concern. Dear friends, do not read this verse, these even commands, apart from the whole context of this letter to the Philippian church. The God who co-authored these words is also the God who is very, very attentive to all the suffering and pain and trouble that was going on in the Apostle Paul's life and in the life of the church. This apostle who wrote this while in chains in prison. This church who was struggling with poverty and yet still found grace to give with generosity to those in need, including Paul himself. This church that was being assaulted by false teaching, the integrity of the community itself possibly being threatened, and of course, as we just heard, relational breakages perhaps amongst leaders, trouble from within. And yet in this midst, the apostle says, rejoice. Some of us tend to be suspicious of feelings, of emotions like joy. Maybe immediately your thought is, well, gosh, there's all this fake joy out there. Is that what we're talking about here? Others of us tend to be slaves to our feelings or emotions. Forgetting that this verse isn't simply simply talking about superficial feelings, and that's what gets confusing here and what makes us step back a little bit is that we feel like Paul is saying, you just need to be smiling all the time. Which is not the case. Understand the apostle says, rejoice, rejoice, in the Lord. He's talking about a, a, a deeper, rooted sense of buoyancy in the soul. A hope that lifts you up despite the circumstances. Where you're able to say with deep, profound gladness of heart, today I might not be okay, but I know in Jesus' name, Everything's going to be all right. To be able to say that true Christian joy is, is not just inward looking, 
Uh, Not just trying to muster up a happy place in your heart. True Christian joy is also not just outward looking. Just trying to base our happiness in our circumstances. Paul is saying there's a joy in Christ that can be found even in the face of prison, poverty, and personal discord. Rather, true Christian joy is upward-looking. Upward-looking, friends. As one scholar teacher has put it, people who are joyful are those who have been delivered from an obsession with themselves and their immediate circumstances. Paul can say rejoice always because he says rejoice in the Lord. Because this joy depends not on changing circumstances, but on the one who does not change. Jesus, who offers true, unchanging forgiveness of your sins. Freedom from guilt and shame. He who covers you. That you can walk with a proper boast in your heart. No matter what the other people around you say. Jesus who promises your full and final restoration. So that no matter how hard it is. He says one day when I return everything is going to be made right. All true justice, all true wholeness, all true peace, all true life will be poured out indestructibly into the lives of those who call him their own. Rejoice, Paul says, because you have a Savior who gave up everything on the cross to have you, to heal you, to save you. Circumstances will change, but Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, dear friends, rejoice in Him. Rejoice in the Lord. And thirdly and lastly, the Apostle points us not only to grace for our conflicts, grace for joy in the face of sorrow, but lastly, grace in our worries. Verse 6 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. What are you worrying about today? What is causing your heart anxiousness? What is it that you feel like, I I just wish I could see around the corner, but I can't, and it's just bugging me? What's distracting you? In your free time, where does your mind wander? A source of quiet or maybe intense concern. This passage wants to give due attention to that, give you grace in the face of that. How can we be delivered from worry? It almost sounds too simple, doesn't it? When the apostle says, pray. To go to God in prayer. We say, well, it doesn't work, and it can't be that simple, can it? 
And so it's important to notice that the apostle, he uses multiple kinds and different kinds of, of words to communicate this idea. He says, he, he talks about prayer. He talks about petition, thanksgiving, present your requests. These are not different types of prayer or components of prayer. Rather, his rhetorical point is that we need to give careful, detailed, thorough presentation of all the needs of my life to God? Have you enumerated, have you listed to God all the things that are driving you nuts? Have you given him a detailed description Maybe even in written prose. God, this is what it really feels like in my heart. Have you been honest in that way? Have you been specific in that way? The apostle invites you to, and he says, therein lies some secrets of God's grace given to those that struggle with worry. But he also reminds us in the midst of that to be sure to offer up thanksgiving. Not simply to list out all the things that we need, but to give thanks to God for all the things He's already provided. And you say, well, why does that matter? Uh, well, you understand he, He's trying to help us focus not just on your neediness, but on God's faithfulness, building up your trust. To focus on God's power, not just your powerlessness, because that is what extinguishes anxiety, faith. Because thanksgiving builds up confidence that God is at work. When I call to mind all the things that God has done, thank you, God, for rescuing me. Thank you, God, for giving this. Thank you, God, for meeting my needs. Thank you, God, for answering this prayer. Have you done that lately? I promise you, it fills your heart with fresh security that God is on your side, that he goes before you, that he protects you, and that he provides for you. Will you rehearse God's track record rather than simply rehearsing your needs? You understand because you can pray and not relinquish control. Because you can pray, you can even beg and not believe at all that God's going to do something. Faithless Prayer, unbelieving prayer, thanksgiving opens your heart to God. Not only what he's done, but who he is. It even, in fact, inspires praise and gladness and joy. Paul says you do this and the peace of God will guard your heart and mind. This is military language, in fact, guarding your heart and mind, guarding and protecting. You might have heard the story of these three individuals who happen to be Americans who on a high-speed train from Amsterdam to Paris tackled and subdued a gunman, a potential terrorist, just jumped on them, even at physical sacrifice to themselves, getting cut up a bit. Paul uses almost the same imagery to say, pray like this with thanksgiving, in detail, with faith and confidence 
in God. And the peace of God will tackle and subdue the anxiousness of your heart. Have you experienced this personally? This unusual thing, a peace which transcends all understanding, where you have every right to be frazzled, where it would be logical, even reasonable, for you to be stressed or fearful or living with your tail between your legs, and yet somehow the grace of God gives you a firm foundation to stand on, a stout heart. And sure, true concerns, but not a worry that debilitates or paralyzes you. Do you know Christ in this way? Will you fix your mind your heart on Him. The world often talks about peace that empties our mind. Here the Apostle talks about filling our minds, filling our hearts. He says, brothers and sisters, finally, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, think about these things. And the greatest of all these things is Jesus himself, the true one, the noble one, the right and pure one, the one who's lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy in all his kindness and truth and cross-purchased grace. As Octavius Winslow, a 19th century teacher, said, it is what Christ is and not what you are that is to fill you with peace joy, and hope. May you be filled with more of Christ in the face of conflict, in the face of broken relationships, in the face of sorrow as you hunger for renewal, even joy. And as you face many challenges in life that tempt you to worry and be debilitated by anxiety, may you have more of Christ. Let's pray. So Jesus, we ask that you would come and fill us, that you would be present in all the real world, day-to-day -day detailed stuff in our lives. Who is Emmanuel like you, God with us, present in all these ways? We pray that you would be for our good, our healing, our saving, for your glory too, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.